say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Appreciate you tuning in. Got a good one for you today. But before we get to it, another shout-out needs to be shouted out to one of my new NewsHound-tiered patrons on Patreon.com. Thank you, Maggie Poffenbarger from California, for your support at Patreon.com slash MostNotorious. And a big thank you always to all of my patrons. I appreciate you so much. Remember, if you like the idea of ad-free episodes on both Most Notorious and Minnesota's Most Notorious, you can find them there along with other cool stuff. All right, let's get to the interview. So glad to have as my guest today, Larry Wood. He is the prolific author of 15 nonfiction history books, two historical novels, and over 400 magazine stories and articles. His The Two Civil War Battles of Newtonia won the Walter Williams Award in 2011. He is here to talk about his most recent release, a book called Bigamy and Bloodshed, The Scandal of Emma Malloy and the Murder of Sarah Graham. So great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. So this was a story that was pretty sensational during its time, but it is not necessarily all that well-known now. How did you first hear about it, and what led you to write a book about it? I first heard about it, I think, right around the year 2000. Uh, I was just kind of perusing a Greene County, Missouri history from 1915, and it described the uh, preliminary hearing of the two women involved in the case, as the most, not the most sensational, but the most spectacular 
legal proceeding in the entire history of the county. And that just kind of struck me as, you know, uh, this must be an interesting case. So the more I started uh, researching it, the more I kind of agreed that it was a spectacular case. And, and I ended up writing a uh, magazine article for uh, the now defunct Ozarks Mountaineer. And then I also ended up including a chapter about this case in a couple of books. There are uh, one called uh, Ozarks Gunfights and Other Notorious Incidents and one called Wicked Joplin about the city, or not Wicked Joplin, Wicked Springfield. I live in Joplin, but uh, Wicked Springfield, the uh, city where it took place. And But I still kind of wasn't really ready to let go of it because it uh, just – you know, I just felt like it deserved more than just a short story or just a you know short article or a chapter in a in a book. I felt like it deserved a full treatment. Yeah, yeah. So part of what makes this story so interesting is that it centers around someone who was very well known in the 1880s, a woman named Emma Malloy. Again, someone that most people don't know about now, but in her day, very famous. Could you talk about her? Why? Was she so recognizable? Uh, yes, Emma Malloy was. Uh, she was born in uh, South Bend, Indiana, and grew up there. And she was a bright girl. She also very religious. She grew up in the Methodist Church. She ended up marrying a guy named Pratt P R A D D T, who was a printer. That she was just not even not not quite nineteen years old when they got married. Uh, they moved to Wisconsin, and he was, uh, I guess, an alcoholic, and, and I don't know that he was abusive physically, but probably abusive emotionally. And their first child died when he was just like a, a girl, I guess it was, when she was just a year or two old. And then just a year or so after that, their other, their second child died. So both of their ch- children died. He uh, took to drink to, kind of, you know, try to drown his sorrows and and. That kind of, I guess, was the last straw because uh, he, uh, you know, reverted, went off the wagon and, and started drinking again. And uh, she divorced him and moved back to Indiana and married a an editor of a newspaper, uh, Ed, Ed Malloy. And he kind of treated her as an equal, took her into his uh, publishing endeavors. And she was a, the co-publisher and, and editor of the local newspaper. Uh, they ran actually a couple, two or three different newspapers, but she was praised for her literary bent. And uh, she was, uh, you know, got at first it was kind of seen as a like a novelty that they had a woman in the journalism business. But uh, pretty soon she kind of earned the respect of her fellow journalists. And then about 1870, the women's movement was kind of getting started like uh, Susan B. Anthony and others, and, and uh, Emma Malloy kind of took it upon herself to to embark on a speaking tour uh, in, in favor of women's rights. Then not too long after that, she also uh, took up the cause of temperance, and that's what she really got famous for was, was her work uh, and her, her speaking as a temperance uh, speaker. She became uh, first kind of uh, known mainly in Indiana, but then she became nationally known and even internationally. She even made a trip to uh, London and was very well received there. And as you say, at one point, she was kind of maybe the, the if not the, one of the two or three preeminent female orators in the country uh, during the late 1870s, early 1880s, around in there. But anyway, another thing she t- uh, got interested in, she, she kind of 
it was kind of ironic, you know, that she was so opposed to alcohol, but she was uh, involved in uh, what today would be called progressive or liberal causes. Like uh, another cause that she was involved in was uh, prison reform. And she visited the North Indiana State Prison and made the acquaintance of a guy named George Graham, who was serving his second term in the uh, Indiana State Prison North. Uh, he had been in prison once before for uh, yeah, horse theft, and then he was in, serving a second term for forgery. But anyway, she kind of befriended him, and when he uh, got out of prison, she kind of took him under her wing and, and took him into her publishing endeavors. At that time, by then, she was publishing a, a or she was the, the editor or publisher of a, a temperance uh, magazine or newspaper called the Morning and Day of Reform, and she took him as her manager. And, of course, that kind of she started receiving a lot of criticism for that. But anyway, Graham did not tell her his whole background. He, you know, he told her that he had been in prison once before. So she knew he had been in prison twice. What he did not tell her was he had been in prison three times. He had also been in prison in the Illinois prison once for horse uh, theft before he got sent to prison in Indiana for, for horse theft. And he was, from the time he was just a, a preteen, he was in trouble in his, his hometown of Fort Wayne. He grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he was, uh, uh, you know, in going back and researching some of the, the early Fort Wayne newspapers and records and stuff, it, it, he was mentioned a lot as just kind of a scoundrel, you know, even from the time he was just a teenager, I guess. She's this uh, very genteel, put-together woman. She's articulate, very respected in the Christian community, and a lot of heads turn when she not only befriends him, but employs him, Right. Right. Yeah. It's, of course, she had already kind of started to uh, incur a little bit of uh, heads turning, you might say, because she had been divorced twice. She was divorced the first time from from Pratt. And then about the time that she made uh, Graham's acquaintance, acquaintance somewhere right around in there, she also ended up divorcing uh, Malloy. She still went by the last name Malloy, but she had actually, by the time the Springfield incident uh, you know, that the book is mainly about happened. She had been divorced from Malloy for a couple of years also. So uh, that also back in the, those days, of course, it was just unheard of for a woman to be divorced twice, you know, even once was not very often, but even was twice. It was unheard of. And so she was kind of uh, frowned upon because of that. But yes, you're right that she was very uh, well educated, very genteel, well-spoken, and even though, despite the, the divorces and so forth, she still was very prominent and very well liked in the, especially in the temperance movement within the temperance movement, because she was such an eloquent speaker. You know, everywhere she went, uh, there were people would take the pledge, you know, not to drink. And she also got into evangelism a little bit, you know, and she was even saving souls. Yeah, a really fascinating woman. So, what was it about this relationship? What did she see in him that others didn't seem to well this i'm speculating really but i think she was drawn to the fact that he was intel he was intelligent i mean he he was a con man but he was also you know literate and intelligent uh, and you can see that in the letters that uh, even after he was arrested he, you know he wrote letters to the springfield newspapers and and they were they were pretty literate letters you know he he would make literary allusions to to dickens and and to various uh, well-known authors in literature 
and he used, used big words, you know, that, uh, you know, sometimes he used words that I even had to look up myself to see what they, what they meant, you know. So he was, uh, an intelligent guy, but he was also, uh, a kind of a, a con man. And I think she just kind of, uh, well, she was a, a sucker for anybody that she thought she could save or thought she could, you know, redeem. But she particularly, I think, liked him because they're, they were kind of intellectual matches, I believe. And so she took him, like I say, under her wing and employed him in her uh, publishing the Morning and Day of Reform, which was a temperance newspaper. And they moved to Washington, Kansas, which is a small town in northern Kansas, kind of northwest of Topeka. And they uh, kind of first started, I guess, people questioning the relationship between her and, and and Graham and why he was, why she was employing him and so forth, mainly there in Washington. And she kind of developed a, a few enemies, a few people, like you said a while ago, who were kind of looking askance at her and wondering what was going on. But she had a, a foster daughter named Cora Lee with whom Graham started kind of falling in love and didn't openly court her, supposedly anyway, because at the time, his first wife, Sarah Graham, and their two children, two young sons, were actually living with the Malloy family in Washington. There was all like seven or eight people all living in the same home. In addition to Cora Lee, Emma Malloy also had a second uh, foster daughter who was uh, Cora's uh, younger sister, Emma Lee. And then she had a, an adopted daughter, Etta Malloy. Uh, and then she had the only biological child of hers that were su- survived, and that was uh, Frank Mal- Frank Malloy, the her and Ed's only son. So, like I say, there was about seven or eight people all living in the same house. But somewhere around early part of 1885, uh, Sarah and and George had a falling out, and Sarah took the kids and went back to Fort Wayne. And it was about shortly after that when. Uh, when Emma Malloy came to Springfield, Missouri for her series of revivals. And that's where all the, the main heart of the book is about is what happened after they got to Springfield. Yeah, it's interesting. He's not a typical criminal, I guess. Um, there were plenty of cads, ne'er-do-wells like him around. But what makes him kind of unique is is that he was able to move around between two worlds. Um, would you say that? He was comfortable around common criminals, but he was also able to rub shoulders with educated people. Yes, I think that's very accurate. I mean, even back in Fort Wayne, uh, when he was in prison, I don't remember for sure whether it was the first time or the second time. I think maybe it was the first time. Yeah, when he was in prison, he uh, studied law while, while he was in prison, and he came back to Fort Wayne and actually you know, hung out a shingle as a lawyer. So, yeah, he was uh, he was intelligent and in fact, he also became a constable in between his stretches in prison, became a constable and, and became an advocate of, for temperance. And that's, I guess, another thing that uh, that drew Emma to him is he had already kind of been involved in the temperance movement even before she met him. You know, he, he had become involved in that in between his uh, his prison stints. So why Springfield? Uh, the way she found her way there, well, of course, she w- she went all over the country, and as I said, even sometimes traveled traveled internationally at least a time or two. But uh, she was uh, brought to Springfield by Judge James Baker and some other prominent citizens of Springfield. Uh, Judge Baker had been instrumental back in the eighteen 
uh, seven, early 1870s of bringing the first railroad to Springfield. And he was a high up guy in uh, the, the state of Missouri legal system. And so he was uh, a pr- very prominent person. And he was also a, uh, a prohibitionist like, like Emma was. In fact, they had a very similar background politically. Uh, they both started out as Democrats, converted to or changed to Republicans, and then eventually became prohibitionists. Uh, and so his friendship, uh, he very quickly developed a friendship with uh, uh, Emma, and she conducted a series of uh, revivals in May in, into early June of 1865 in Springfield. And after they were over, he offered to kind of set her up, set her up on a farm out just outside Springfield between Springfield and the small town of Brookline, about three miles uh, from Brookline, about five miles from Springfield. And he basically bought the house, uh, the farm for her, and then she was going to pay him back in installments, uh, that type of thing. Also, in the meantime, about the time that this uh, farm transaction took place, Cora Lee, the older foster daughter and George Grant. George came to Springfield, even though uh, his wife and his kids had gone back to Fort Wayne. He he didn't actually come with Emma Malloy and Cora Lee, but he showed up shortly afterwards, just a couple of weeks after they had gotten in Springfield and resumed the courtship that he had undertaken back in Washington, Kansas, while he was still uh, living with uh, with uh, Sarah. And so they ended up getting married in July of 1885. And what the deal was is they knew that, that he was, of course, married to Sarah because they, they actually even lived together. But he said he confessed, supposedly confessed to them that they, they'd been living in sin because he had divorced Sarah after he got out of prison the first time in Indiana, apologized, you know, and sought their forgiveness and so forth. And Mrs. Malloy checked, even checked up. She went and, and checked in the Indiana records, you know, sent a, a letter checking up and come to find out. Yes, sure enough, he had divorced uh, Sarah. So she went ahead and gave the marriage her blessing. But what George had not told them was that he had remarried Sarah after he got out the, uh, the first time, but before he went back the second time to prison. So, so he was still married to Sarah when he married Cora Lee. This book is such a, a soap opera. <laughs> uh, perhaps I'm getting ahead here, but this was a scandal that would rival any one of the modern celebrity era scandals yeah. easily. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, the, it was so scandalous, you know, partly because of who, like you said earlier, you know, because of Emma Malloy's fame, you know, she was such a well-known person and, and, uh, it really delighted the liquor people, you know, the, an, the anti-temperance people that she was in trouble because it, she was a strong advocate for temperance and they were glad to, to see her kind of be brought down, you know, and so, so, uh, you know, it's always, I guess, a scandal when someone who sets themselves up as kind of a, uh, a beacon of morality or whatever gets brought down, you know, and that's kind of what they were, you know, they were really enjoyed seeing that. But anyway, what happened then in the late summer, early fall of 1885 was uh, Sarah and George. Sarah started writing letters to George wanting to get back together, you know, and she finally said that she was going to come to Springfield and bring the boys. And he was trying to talk her out of it, but she insisted on that she was going to do it. So he finally agreed to meet her in St. Louis uh, with the boys 
And of course, he was still telling Sarah that he he and Cora were not married, had not got she had heard uh, through the grapevine somehow that that he had married Cora. And he was trying to convince his first wife that he had not married Cora. But he agreed to meet her in St. Louis. And this was like in late September of 1885. And they did meet in St. Louis. And again, he tried to talk her out of continuing the journey, tried to get her to go stay with an uncle who lived in, in St. Louis or to, to go back to Fort Wayne or whatever. But she, no, she insisted on coming on. So they had the two kids with them. They came on to Springfield. And when they got to Springfield, George had already called ahead and made arrangements to have the two kids uh, stay in a boarding house. And then he and Sarah were going to continue on out to Brookline. At least that's what they told the kids, you know. But what happened was that they eventually, you know, Sarah was so insistent that she was going to go on on out to Brookline and what she said, clear Cora out, that they started walking from Springfield to Brookline, which was four or five, about five miles away. And what happened exactly after that, no one really still probably knows for sure. But apparently from from uh, George's con- later confession and from what the investigators were able to determine, uh, they got clear out almost to the farm and she still would not turn back. And so he apparently killed her right just outside the farm and dumped her body in a, an old abandoned well there on the Malloy farm. And like I said, this was like, September 30th or early in the morning of October 1st, 1885. And according to his account, he would claim it was an accident, right? Right. He, he claimed that uh, they got into an argument about uh, her indiscretion, her sexual indiscretion. Supposedly he, she was of course giving him all kinds of heck for, for what he had done, you know, marrying Cora while she, he was still married to, to Sarah and uh, so he reminded her of some little indiscretion that she had done back in Indiana, I guess it was, or it may have been when they were living up by Chicago, at Elgin, Illinois. And that supposedly made her mad. And she picked up a stick, had a stick in her hand or something that she was going to hit him with. Or, and he, oh, I guess maybe she had a knife or something. I don't know. He had a knife in his hand while he was whittling. And anyway, he, he supposedly, according to her, accidentally stabbed her the first time. But he saw that she was injured so bad that he just went ahead and, and killed her. That was what he said in his confession when he finally did confess. Of course, it, it took him a long time before he finally confessed. You know, when he was first arrested, he, uh, you know, denied anything about it. Well, actually, should kind of back up because there were several months elapsed from the time that her body was dumped in the well before it was actually found. And that is a big part of the story, too, the, the hunt for, for what happened to her. She was stabbed in in the throat, correct? Yes, yeah, stabbed. She was, uh, of course, the coroner's inquest concluded that she had been killed by a gunshot, uh, but he claimed that he did not shoot her. He claimed that he just stabbed her. They never did find a bullet. So, you know, in that sense, his story might, might have had some credence, but uh, the so-called experts at the time all concluded that she had been shot, you know, uh, even though they never found actually found a bullet. But he had dragged her to an abandoned well at the corner of the property, right? And just dumped her body in. Just dumped her in basically. Yeah. And dumped in some of her belongings and so forth. And, and 
then this was like I say, first part of October of 1885. And then by around Christmas, uh, her father, uh, Marquis uh, Gorham from uh, Fort Wayne started writing and her sister, Abby, uh, started writing letters trying to find out what had happened to her because she had promised Abby, her sister, that when she got to Springfield that she would write and let her know what was going on and so forth. And she didn't. And so they started writing letters inquiring what was going on, what, where she was. And the constable from Brookline tried to go out and search the premises, but they more or less wouldn't let him. They just said, said, no, you know, you, you, you don't have any right to come looking around, but they did kind of let him look around a little bit. And, uh, eventually, uh, in February, it took all the way to February, late February of 1886, uh, when they finally organized a really, uh, determined search party and they went out on that morning. I think it was February 25th. And they even had a windlass with them because they'd already decided that that might be one likely place that she was. So they had a windlass to enable them to lower a man down into the well. And that's what they did. And they discovered her body there at the bottom of the well, her de- decaying body. So it was clear that she had been there for quite some time. And John Potter, who was the postmaster at Brookline, also part of the search party, he also had been one of the main ones trying to investigate where Sarah's whereabouts were. And he rushed to Springfield to report what had happened. And then they, the authorities came out to, to the farm and George was arrested. He wasn't arrested immediately because he wasn't present. At the, he, he had taken off. Again, I need to backtrack a little bit because when things started closing in on him, when he realized that, uh, you know, that they were really intent on finding Sarah, he forged some checks in Springfield and used the money to finance his getaway. And he took off for Kansas city and St. Joseph, Missouri. And Emma tried to you know, get him to come back. She said, You're, you look more guilty by running than you would if you'd come back and face the music, you know, because she still believed in him at this time. You know, she, she still thought he was innocent. And so she finally talked him into coming back and she made his checks good his bad checks that he had written, she, uh, you know, she made him good. And then it was shortly after that, that the public found out that he was a bigamist, you know, even up until this point, they had not even known he was a big, a bigamist, much less a murderer, you know, they, but they found out that he had been previously married to Sarah and had gotten remarried to her and had not gotten divorced a second time. So it came out in the Springfield newspapers first that he was a forger. And then a couple of weeks later, it came out that he was a bigamist. And then not too long after that, they uh, discovered Sarah's body. And so then they were pretty sure he was also a murderer, you know, so he finally did come back and they, they arrested him and put him in jail for suspicion of murder. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Graham was such a professional liar. I mean, he had all these people believing in him, covering for him, even as the walls were closing in. His children were even covering for him. They knew their mother had come all the way to Springfield, of course. I mean, they traveled with her. And he told them not to tell his new family. And after he's murdered Sarah, he introduces his children to his new wife. <laughs> and the way he's able to manipulate Emma Malloy is, is, a, is really astounding. Oh yes, he I mean, he was a he was a very good liar. You know, he uh, if he'd get caught in one lie, he would just fall back on another one. You know, like uh, uh, he he first said that uh, that Sarah had gone on to Kansas City or something. You know, and 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 he said he had met her in a hotel room up there in a certain room. So one of the detectives went up to Kansas City to to check to see if he actually had, and, and they found out, of course, that he had not. And but then he had another lie ready. I can't remember, but he would always have another lie handy you know, as soon as he got caught in one lie. Uh, you know, and as you say, he was uh, very manipulative. He even told Charlie, his oldest son, who was 13 years old, as you said, he told Charlie that uh, his mother was actually staying in a nearby town called Pierce City. Uh, and the reason that she had not gone on out to the farm was uh, he needed, uh, George said he needed to get some things settled, but he was going to inherit or get all of the farm for himself. And when that happened, then he would bring the family there. But in the meantime, he did not want Sarah coming there to the farm because it would upset Cora and Emma, you know, they because they didn't like each other. And, you know, but he was just lying to his own kids about it, you know. So correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. I just want to make sure I get the timeline right. So he's arrested, but authorities just assume that he didn't act alone in all of this. They didn't believe his new wife or Emma Malloy could have been blind to his machinations. And possibly they were involved in the murder or the planning of the murder as well. Right. Emma Malloy was not really suspected of being in on the actual murder because she was not, she was off on one of her evangel evangelic meetings, you know, or her, her temperance uh, meetings, but she was, they thought she was in on covering it up, you know, and she did try to protect him. There, there's no doubt that she did try to protect him, but 
what was she trying to protect him from? You know, I kind of argue in the book that she was just trying to protect him from what she saw as a rush to judgment, because at this point she still believed he was innocent. You know, she, she had, you know, he, he just had her convinced that, that he did not do this, you know, and, it was just, uh, you know, it's almost unbelievable that she could have been that naive, but I really truly think she was so insisting on kind of saving his soul or whatever that, uh, she just was blind to his faults. Uh, but yeah, uh, they arrested him for murder, but they ended up, uh, arresting both Cora and Emma Malloy, Cora Lee and Emma Malloy as accessories, uh, Cora as an accessory before the fact and Emma Malloy as an accessory after the fact. And their preliminary hearings took place before his preliminary hearing, even though he was the one that was actually charged with murder. They went ahead and, and held the women's preliminary hearing first. And that was the, of course, the legal proceeding that the 1915 Greene County history referred to as the most spectacular procedure in the entire life of the county. And part of what was going on was that there were Rumors that there was an intimate relationship between them, neither would admit to, at least initially for for Graham. Yes, and that and that started really at the at the uh, preliminary hearing because uh, Charlie Graham, the thirteen year old son, was the the main witness, uh, you know, the main prosecution witness, and he not only. You know, he really didn't have any firsthand knowledge as far as the murder was concerned, but he did implicate. Uh, Emma Malloy in a kind of a sexual liaison with his father. He, he kept, he didn't specifically say that he had seen him having sex or anything like that, but he he'd seen him in compromising positions, you know, like he'd seen his father sitting on her lap or, vi- or vice versa, her sitting on his father's lap and such as that, you know. Uh, and so it was really a kind of a scandalous thing. His testimony was, you know, very highly, highly charged and, and uh, a lot of people, the, courthouse was just flooded with people, you know, because of wanting to hear all the gossip, you know, on Emma Malloy. And of course, again, it's even more sensational, I guess, because she's the leader of a Christian movement. And the rumors of scandals just stack on top of each other. Yeah. She's involved with the same man her foster daughter is. And this man was married to someone else. And she doesn't do well handling all of these innuendos, right? Right. Well, she waited too long to answer, I guess. But, that, you know, a lot of that was, at least that was what people criticized her for. She waited too long to, to deny all this. And But she said the reason she was, and it got, kind of makes sense, is she was trying to get proof uh, that this all was wrong. Well, I should go ahead and say that, uh, it got even worse than what her, the son, Charlie Graham testifying against her, but because after they denounced his testimony, then George went one step further and issued a inflammatory, uh, statement, big long statement about all the places that he had in fact actually had sexual relations with Emma Malloy, even named hotels and, and places and times and such as that. And so she said the reason that she did not promptly answer that was she was digging up the proof that she could not have been in some of the places that he said she was, you know, and she was having to, to solicit letters from people who, who knew and that sort of thing. So that's why she did, she did promptly deny it, but she didn't offer any, any convincing proof. And, you know, she just said it took, you know, it took time to, 
to uh, dig up all the evidence. So that was uh, wasn't really a mistake on her part, but it was just something that caused people to uh, suspect her even more, I guess. Do you believe that they were having an intimate relationship? I do not. <laughs> uh, but for one thing, I think one of the strongest arguments against it is the fact that she and Cora remained close throughout this whole thing. You know, I just can't imagine a young woman whose foster mother was having sex with her husband-to-be and, and husband at the same time that, that he supposedly was telling Cora that he loved only her, you know, and and that if there's any truth to it, that, that Cora would have continued to have been friends and, and continued to look at Emma Malloy as, as her mother, which, and she did, you know, she, she, she never, never turned against uh, Emma. I mean, there's other reasons why I believe it also, but that, that's one of the main reasons. But when she, when Emma finally did offer proof of some of the things that, uh, places where she had supposedly had been, according to George, she offered proof that she had not. And I was even able to go back into newspapers and prove for myself that she actually was where she said she was at the time. You know, like in one case, uh, it was in Ohio somewhere. I can't remember where George said she was on the October the 8th of 1884 or something like that. Uh, 1883, I guess it was October 8th of 1883 that he supposedly met her and had a sexual relationship with her in a certain town in Ohio. And it was 50 miles away from the town where Emma actually was and where she spent the night. And, she was with other people who verified her, you know, that she was there the whole time in that town, not, not in the town that uh, George said he was. And I looked back in the newspapers and I found that yes, indeed she was in that town where she said she was, you know, and that's just one example, but you know, it's like one of the observers at the time pointed out, if Graham was lying about one, at one particular instance, he probably was lying about the whole thing, you know, so, cause he was such a known liar anyway. So she really only turned on him when he finally turned on her, when he felt he was backed against the wall. And it took that for her to realize the true nature of his immoral character. Yeah, she, she really, she didn't turn on him until, like you say, until the very, it was just obvious to everybody by then that he was guilty. And it, and she finally had to kind of accept the handwriting on the wall because uh, well, one thing uh, he kind of started turning on her when she wouldn't uh, go his bail to, get, to try to get him out of, out of jail. You know, uh, she said that she didn't have the money right then, that she had, there's no way she could come up with that kind of money, you know, and, and he uh, that, that kind of started turning him against her. Uh, but then but she still believe even at that point, she still believed he was innocent. And it wasn't until later that uh, that uh, she finally kind of realized that she had been played for a fool. <laughs> what were the, the results of the preliminary hearings? Well, before the, before the, well, at the end of the preliminary hearing, uh, Cora was uh, indicted and held, held for, well, she wasn't indicted. She was held for the grand jury on the uh, charges of accessory before the fact. And Emma Malloy was held on charges of accessory after the fact. And then the grand jury did go ahead and, and indict both of them. But then before before it actually went to trial or anything, and before uh, Graham himself even had his preliminary hearing, he ended up getting lynched. If you could walk us through that lynching, did he see that coming? I mean, there had been a buzz around town, not only that 
he might get lynched, but that Emma and Cora might as well. Right. It, there was especially strong with him. But yeah, like you say, there were even rumors that the two women might get lynched. But uh, especially from the time he was first arrested, uh, there were especially from around the little community of Brookline where the murder took place. There were people who had written to the authorities in Greene County saying that you need to hurry up and have a speedy trial on this and quit delaying justice and everything. And that if you don't, we'll take things into our own hand. And eventually that's what they did. What instigated it was Graham's lawyer was trying to get uh, him released on, on bond or something. And when that happened, that's it's the very next day is when he was lynched. It was in late April of 1885. Uh, they took him out a whole bunch of men, but there were like 10 of them that actually went into the Green County jail there in Springfield and, and forced their way into the cell and, and took him out. And they took him about two or three miles north of the square. The square, of course, is where the courthouse was, and the jail was on the back side of the courthouse and took him to what's now a park called Grant Beach Park. I don't think it was there. Well, I know it was not there at the time, but anyway, they took him to that place and uh, lynched him. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody really thought that they had the wrong person. You know, they, they all felt like that he, well, he had confessed. In fact, he had actually even confessed to the murder. He just, uh, wouldn't, uh, he, he wouldn't backtrack on his, uh, more, his, uh, you know, sexual innuendos about the women, but he did take all the blame as far as the murder itself was concerned. And the lynching was botched too. Right. It's like he wasn't high enough. Yeah. The first time they tried to lynch him, like you say, it wasn't high enough and his his feet touched the ground. So they had to take, you know, take off the rope and and put it up higher and redo it. And this was like three, three o'clock in the morning, three thirty in the morning or something when it happened. And there was rumors even, of course, some people claimed that uh, Judge Baker, you know, Emma's powerful friend and and his uh, friends were even kind of instigated the whole deal in order to shut him up, you know, so he wouldn't uh, further implicate the two women in the uh, murder itself. Uh, But the evidence, most of the evidence points pretty clearly to the fact that the lynch mob came from Brookline, not from Springville. Uh, You know, Baker's influence was mainly in Springfield. That's where he was a prominent person. He he wasn't well known in Brookline. Uh, It was all mainly Brookline people that came in and lynched him. And they left a rather ominous note pinned to his clothing. Yeah. Yeah, they called themselves the, the 300, I think it was. And then they said that uh, yeah, anybody who tries to to discover the actors in this drama or something like that, you know, will be consigned to hell or something. I don't know. You know, it was kind of a colorful wording the way they worded it. I don't remember exactly what it was but uh, without looking it up. But, but yeah, it was kind of a a uh, ominous and like you, uh, it's colorful and like you say, ominous uh, note that was attached to his body. So what happened after the lynching? It was after George got lynched that Emma finally issued her denial. And that was, she got a lot of criticism for that too, you know, saying that uh, why didn't she issue her denial while he was still alive to answer it? Well, my contention is 
you know, she, how did she know when he was going to get lynched? You know, unless you really believe the, the contention that George, uh, that James Baker had something to do with it. I don't. Uh, so anyway, uh, as I said, she was just, uh, taking time to get evidence to prove that she was not, uh, with him in Chicago and these various other places. But anyway, Cora's trial was f- held first before uh, Emma's and it kept getting postponed and it was finally held in the, uh, summer of 1887 or maybe it was the spring of 1887 and it ended in a hung jury and then she was tried again a second time a year later in early 1888 and in the second trial she was acquitted uh, real quickly uh, like and it was not I don't remember if it was unanimous I can't remember right offhand whether it was a unanimous verdict or not I'd have to look that up but anyway there was no doubt that to, in the minds of those jurors that she was innocent. And after that happened, then the charges against Emma Malloy were dropped. But uh, she was still, the taint of scandal still lingered. You know, she was never quite the famous uh, temperance orator that she had been before all this happened. She did move out to the state of Washington and kind of reestablished herself there uh, as a working in the temperance movement and working at the Siemens Bethel uh, ministering to sailors, uh, but she was never nationally famous like she had been before. Yeah, later on in in her life, there would be new figures taking up the temperance mantle, like Carrie Nation, who used a bit more of an aggressive strategy, right? Yeah, more aggressive, and and I don't probably not. I don't think. I don't really know that much about Carrie Nation, but I doubt very seriously if she was as eloquent a speaker as Emma Malloy. Uh, they, you know, these, a lot of people said that, uh, you know, just being her presence, it was like you were drawn into the influence of her, almost mesmerizing, you know, that she was just had that, had that effect on people, you know, that she was just a, a mesmerizing person, mesmerizing speaker, you know. You can see, uh, even from the illustrations, the photographs of her, there is something uh, very alluring about her. Yeah, well, yeah, well, she's attractive. I mean, she was an attractive woman. You know, uh, uh, she got uh, a thing I haven't touched on was before the George Graham scandal. She also got involved in a little bit of a scandal when a, in 1882 when a uh, fellow temperance worker left his wife to pursue Emma and went chasing after Emma Malloy. Uh, and they, you know, accused her of, uh, of agony on, you know, of enticing him. But then they had conducted a uh, hearing into an inquiry into it and they completely exonerated her that, and he even admitted that she'd had nothing to do with it, that he just decided he wanted to try to go after her (laughs) because, you know, and one of the newspapers commented that uh, Emma Malloy should know that uh, there's always going to be, foolish men pursuing attractive women, you know, and she was an attractive woman. You know, He, he probably turned to uh, drink after that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, he actually became a, a sworn enemy of hers and started writing letters against her and, and so forth. But then by the, oh, by the time of the, uh, the big scandal in Springfield, he had started writing letters again, trying to re, uh, you know, get back with her. I mean, as a friend, you know, to get back in her, into her good graces. <laughs> And he he'd, he'd reconciled with his wife, and he even said that his wife was willing to become friends with her again, you know. <laughs> so what about the Graham boys? They wanted 
some modicum of revenge for the death of their mother. I think they they did, especially in the, at, at the very beginning. But I really think that by the end of it, by the time Cora was was uh, exonerated or Cora was found not guilty in 1888, Charlie had kind of come around and started changing his mind and realizing that his father really was the, the probably the only guilty one. He had he in fact he offered a testimony at the second trial that he had not offered at the first trial, which kind of assured that she would get off when he said that uh, he had previously said that his father did not have a pistol with him in St. Louis, that he had left his pistol with Cora. And so they thought that Mate Cora might've even been the one that pulled the trigger, you know, but at the second trial, Charlie said, admitted that yes, her, his father did have a pistol while in, in St. Louis before they ever came to Springville, you know? So that kind of, kind of showed that, uh, it, that maybe, Cora was not the one that had anything to do with pulling the trigger, you know. <laughs> so is there anything left physically from the scene of the crime? I mean, if someone went out to visit the farm, what would they find? The farm is still fairly much intact, which is it actually surprised me when I was first started trying to look for it. I thought it because the whole area around it has been built up and, you know, it's pretty much a housing addition, but the actual farm where, where this took place is still pretty much intact and it's surrounded by all these housing areas. But really the only thing there that resembles probably the way it was at the time is the lay of the land. You know, the, you can still recognize where they talk about the well in, into which Sarah's body was tossed is kind of down at the bottom of the hill. And it's, you know, you can still see that hill where the bottom of the hill where it took place. And uh, the farm house itself is uh, not there. It's not the same one. Or if it is the same one, it's been drastically remodeled. I, I haven't really tried to find out for sure whether it's the same one. I'm just assuming it's not. But it is located in pretty much the same place. Uh, but like I say, even if it uh, is uh, the same one underneath, it's uh, it's not the same one, the same exterior or anything like that. When you went to visit the premises, was the family living there surprised at its history? Actually, the place was for sale at the time. And I, I called the, the number on the, you know, the for sale sign. And I talked to the owner and I asked him, you know, if he had ever heard anything about it. And he said, no, you know, he didn't even know anything about it. You know, <laughs> But he was in the process of selling it. And that's why I thought when he sold it, that it might get chopped up into, uh, you know, it parceled into lots. But it's not. It's still pretty much intact farm. This has been a couple of years ago that I talked to him and he, he was in the process of selling it then. So it has since sold and there's no indication that it's going to be uh, chopped up into into a housing addition. And as far as you know, that the family that lives there now has no idea what happened there. No, as far as I know, they, they do not. Uh, I have not talked to them. But, you know, as, as far as what happened to any of the family members and stuff, George and, and Roy, his little brother, they went back with uh, Abby, uh, Sarah's sister, their aunt, uh, their aunt, and as we say in the Ozarks, instead of aunt. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they went back to Fort Wayne with her and were kind of reared by her. And as far as I can tell, they, or at least uh, Charlie, kind of just grew up to be a normal person, you know, pretty pretty law-abiding person. Uh, I found him in later census records and stuff. And 
I don't think he inherited his father's uh, scandalous ways or or his ruffian ways or whatever you want to call it. Did Cora Lee remarry? Cora Lee did finally remarry. She not for quite a while, but yeah, she remarried and lived with her sister in Omaha, Nebraska for a while, and then finally moved out uh, to Wyoming, I think. And uh, yeah, she lived up and in, into the like 1920s or 30s, somewhere around there, I think. Of course, uh, Emma Emma died shortly after the turn of the century, right, right around not too long after the turn of the century. So for people who want to learn more about you and your work, you have a blog, right? Yeah, that's right. It's www.ozarks-history at blogspot.com. Perfect. And what will people find there? It's mostly going to be about uh, local regional history, anything about southwest Missouri, southeast Kansas, northwest Arkansas, the whole state of Missouri, actually, and uh, even northeast uh, Oklahoma, including this book even. That's mainly what I write about is stuff that has happened in the four-state, what we call the four-state area of Kansas, Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. And I write about two things, either the Civil War. I've written several books about the Civil War, and then most of the rest of the stuff I write is about notorious stuff, you know, gunfights and murders and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, we, we like that stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do too. I enjoy researching it. Yeah, so when, when was your book, book released? It was released on the 15th of this month, and, of course, it's available through Kent State University, their website, or it's available to other stores, online stores, that sort of thing. Perfect. Well, well this has been wonderful. Thank you for spending some time with me. Thanks, Eric. Again, I have been speaking to Larry Wood, and we've been talking about his book, Bigamy and Bloodshed, The Scandal of Emma Malloy and the Murder of Sarah Graham. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.